Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit, the newest and most reliable state-of-the-art time-traveling transportation service, is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Odyssey. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 17 of the podcast. I want to quickly acknowledge that the following conversation would not have happened if it weren't for the wonderful Janet Varney. I'm an avid listener of her podcast, The JV Club, and while catching up on a few episodes, I stumbled across an episode featuring today's guest, Afia Augustine. In that episode, she spoke about loving Egyptology and desperately wanting to become an Egyptologist, but sadly did not end up pursuing it because of the financial barriers and some parental opposition. Upon hearing her story, I immediately reached out to Afia because I knew I wanted to have her on the podcast. I think she offers a very valuable perspective into many of the artificial barriers that stop people from going into ancient studies. I also loved her passion for the ancient world and great sense of humor. It was really fun to nerd out and talk about loving mummies, seeing representations of Egypt in the media, and how we keep the ancient world around in our normal everyday lives. So enjoy this episode and I'll see you all next week. Okay, so I want to thank you for joining me on the podcast this evening. Um, so if you could start out by just like telling us like a small blurb about who you are and what you do, uh, that would be great. Absolutely. So my name is Afia A. Um, I do several things. I am the host of the Adultish Podcast, which you can find online, as well as the founder and designer of Pretty Poet Inc., which is an online boutique. Um, that I run with my handmade gems and accessories. But my regular nine to five is that I'm an admissions director for a nonprofit tech school. Those are the many hats that I wear. And on the side side, I do some freelance writing as well. Bunch of things. Nice. Nice. And the the reason I, funny story, wanted you to come on the podcast is uh, I happened to be listening to another podcast and I heard you talk about your childhood love for all things Egyptology and dead mm-hmm. people and mummies. Yes. And, uh, love it. And then I heard you, you talked a little bit about how you weren't able to professionally pursue that interest for a number of reasons. And so mm-hmm. I just, I thought it was such an interesting story and it gets to the heart of what I try to talk about here on my podcast, which mm-hmm. is all these artificial barriers that we put up. So that way either we as young people or our parents get scared yes. out of 
feeling like you would be able to be okay with your children, like going into something that's really obscure, really old, and seems like it doesn't have any kind of practical applicability mm-hmm. um, in like contemporary society. So mm-hmm. if you want to just like run us down, like how did you, where, where did that interest in Egypt come from? I can, like, if you, you get I can give you all the, as the young people say, the tea. I feel super old, even though I'm not really old, but I can say I'm older and I just had a birthday. So I could say that too. So funny thing, uh, as I mentioned, the podcast we were talking about, the Janet Varney. So I was on a podcast with Janet Varney and it was just so weird and random. I had told her about it before. But so when I was about, I want to say 12 years old, 11, 12 years old, I had seen The Mummy and the Brendan Fraser, Rachel Wise version, not the Tom Cruise version that I don't even, that I don't know her. She does not exist. But either way, I had seen this movie, right? And at that time, I don't know what it was about watching The Mummy that clicked in my brain, but it was something about the wonderment, like just something about, I don't know if it was the color of the sand or like the cinematography or the imagery of the pyramids or the statues of Anubis. I don't know what it was, but something about it was just like, this is so interesting to me. Like this, this is crazy, right? And for those of you who have seen The Mummy, the movie clearly, you know, stems around a mummy. But at the heart of the movie, which a lot of people don't give her credit for, is that this movie was about an extremely smart female Egyptologist who was not getting her break into the business because she was a woman and they deemed her to be dumb and silly and trite and filled with all kinds of emotions and all the weak things that they quote unquote, you know, the quote unquote weak things that they associate with the fairer quote unquote sex. And I think it was Evie's love and passion for Egypt that I was like, I, I can see why, right? Like I can understand the love and feel for that. And as luck would have it, as I'm deciding that this is something that I really like, I, I, I tend to become really obsessive around things that I'm fascinated about. So I'm watching The Mummy and I'm starting to get really fascinated about this. And as luck would have it, at around that time in junior high, we were doing presentations on like ancient cultures. And we were doing a rotation of cultures and one of the cultures was Egypt. So now this opened up an opportunity for me to study this even more because now I got to do a presentation around it. And I had to either make a a funeral mask or something, you know, junior high school, like make a collage or whatever, whatever. So in me continuing to study that for this class, again, it's, it's clicking even more in my brain. Like it's clicking even more like this is something I really like. I really like this. This is so interesting to me. This is so crazy to me. How did people write with like, you know, they didn't use letters, they used photos and how, you know, pictures and they chiseled these and crazy, this is what? So (laughs) I start just learning more and trying to figure out as much as I could. And um, as I said to Janet, once I was old enough to go to the library by myself or go to the library with groups of people, either way, I would go to the library and just start pulling books about uh, mostly about the language because I, I really wanted to tap into um, hieroglyphics and, and reading and writing them and, and understanding them. That was kind of like my biggest thing at that moment. The culture, of course, I wanted to know that, but I wanted to crack that code, right? And so I start buying and I still have them on my bookcase. I'm actually looking at them now. Mr. Budge collection of books by, what's the E.A. Wallace Budge? I think that was the name. 
or yeah, Mr. Budge. I'm just gonna call him Mr. Budge. And he has like a series of books, really old time, I guess, archaeologist and, and linguistic professor and all that other good stuff. So I used to buy these books with my visa bucks, thanks to my sister, with my preloaded visa bucks card, made all my friends feel bad because I'm here swipe swiping things at 14 and they thought I had a credit card and it really wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I start reading these things and I just start getting even more fascinated, right? And I start teaching myself how to read and write hieroglyphics. And then I start finding myself um, watching more of the Discovery Channel or watching National Geographic. I find myself, uh, you know, seeing these documentaries and actually making it a point in my head. Wait, there's a documentary on Tuesday at 8 p.m. about King Tut. You got to watch that, right? And this literally consumed me for like years. I'm not even going to say a number of years, for years, because even as I left junior high school and I went into high school, I was still very much fascinated by this. I, I wanted, I think at that point in time, I knew in my head, like, I want to pursue this as a job, right? And I would have friends talk to me about like, well, you know, it's dealing with dead people. Like, can you, can you be bothered with dead? Like, can you touch it? Like, oh my God, that's so morbid. And the thing I'd love to say was, um, they're not, you know, like freshly dead people. So it's not like I'm touching skin or muscle tissue. Like it's all gone. It's just bones at that point. Like if you can hold a chicken bone in your hand and be fine with it, like I could hold a human bone and be fine with it. Like there's nothing wrong with that, right? So again, this fascination, it grows and it grows and it gets to a point even where I think at 17, I was in a high school science research. As a matter of fact, now I'm remembering, I feel like I repressed all these things, but not remembering. So in high school, we had, um, I was a part of a high school science research class. Like that was the class that we had. And everyone else is talking about cancers and dystrophies and all that other stuff. And my project was mitochondrial DNA cracking the code in ancient Egypt families. Like this was, <laughs> this is my, you know, my contribution to a science fair, right? And it's like, I can't even, I can't go into a museum and like touch mitochondrial. Like I can't even touch any of the things I'm talking about, like at all, but um, I made it work. And in fact, it, it, it impressed my high school science research teacher, even though she like barely almost failed me for that class for whatever reason. It impressed her because she too had said to me when she was younger, she had an interest in archaeology and she was kind of like dissuaded from it as well. So when she saw that I had this interest, it was like, yeah, go for it. Why not? Even though she knew that I couldn't do any kind of actual scientific research on any of the stuff I was talking about. Take that project all the way to, I think, what was it? Was it? No, Lehman College. They were having like a science fair exhibit thing and she puts me for that and I go to it and I ended up I think winning like third place or getting third place or something in this this science research competition because again people were like this is weird and new like we've never seen a person come in here talking about mummies before it's always about you know some weird bacterial shit not not some dead people so <laughs> caught their eye uh, to say the least. And it continued, like all of that just kept feeding this little beast inside me, right? So go from that. And it's because of the, the school that I went to in New York City, uh, Brooklyn Tech. Um, I was a part of a program there at the time it was called Pulse, but essentially it was like a little school within the big school. 
and our little school, there was a requirement to be in the little school, which was you had to do a science research internship every summer, which we all hated because we wanted to be regular ass kids. But here we are being big old nerds, like every summer doing some kind of research and internship, right? That was our lives. And I wanted to do something archaeology based. Like I wanted to do something archaeological, like every single summer. And so you would find me applying to, um, it's like University of Chicago would have like an internship, University of Pennsylvania would have some kind of internship. I would apply to these things. I would have, yeah, like I would have my teachers, they would write recommendations for me to go to these things. And the biggest issue or hurdle that I had at that time was one, financing it. Cause a lot of those um, internships, you know, they, they require you to live on campus at that location. Um, and it's basically like going to the college, like you got to pay, you know, boarding fees and all that other stuff. And there's some scholarships, but they don't typically cover everything. That's kind of ridiculous when you think about that's just an internship, right? But you got to go in debt to go into an internship. But aside from that, so I would get all these things. And then the, the second hurdle was my mom, who was just like, that's some weird stuff that you're into. And I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. Right. So um, she typically would use the money. Like, I can't afford to send you to these things, honey. Like, I'm so sorry. And I'd be like, sure, mom, whatever. But Destiny was not her best friend because <laughs> the American Museum of Natural History had an internship. And I got into the American Museum of Natural History internship. And it was the high school science research, um, American Museum of Natural History high school science research program. And that program, I'm thinking about it now, and it's like almost like... 20 years ago, but it was just ridiculous. It was ridiculous. It was, it was ridiculous for many good reasons. Like it was ridiculous because we got to be in the museum at night when no one else was there. So like the, you know, the, the hall of biodiversity, that giant whale, like we actually got locked in there once, like the power went out and we were just, we started playing like tag in these dark ass rooms, like all these giant figures, like, Oh my God, a lion. And it's like, no, it's stuffed. Remember? Um, so we, it was really crazy. It was a good time though, but they had several departments. One was like about ichthyology and then uh, one for people who wanted to do, I think they were like the, all the, the bio people, like they wanted to do all that stuff. And then you had the archeology span people, the anthro and archeo people. And I was a part of that group. So got to meet this professor named Sophia Protocaris. I'll never forget um, this woman's extremely Greek name. I loved it. And uh, she was really cool. And so for two years, I did that program there. We never really did any excavation or anything like that, but we learned simple techniques, like just understanding what archaeology means. Um, we did some anthropology classes, you know, understanding the con sociological concepts and, you know, like rites of passage and across different cultures. And that's, that was the core, uh, the class that I took that I learned about, you know, regional dialects and how we speak and linguistics. It was amazing for somebody who loves trivia like me, like just shit to just stay in your brain whenever you want it. And graduate that program, go to college, go to Brooklyn College. And who do I bump into while I'm at Brooklyn College, but Sophia Perdicaris. And she's the head of the architecture department at Brooklyn College. So go there. And it's like, I still, I still couldn't escape it. Right. It was like, oh, this thing is telling me this, this is my destiny. Like if I, you know, like if my intent really, and I, and I didn't even want to stay at home. I didn't want to be at a CUNY or a city university. I wanted to go away. And I was schmoozing with people at Brandeis. And that was the other thing too, uh, might I add that whenever I spoke about doing archeology span to like um, admissions people, they would look at me like, huh, that's interesting. Tell us more. And it was just like, you know, beautiful coffee talk. Like I could just talk to them about what I wanted to do and what I was interested. 
we've never had, you know, have we ever had applicants who are like, no, right? Yeah, this is, this is interesting. So now I started sticking out, right, into like admissions uh, people. So that's really why I wanted to go. But I ended up not doing that. Again, monetary uh, means or, you know, lack of finances. Stay, stay in the city. Go to Brooklyn College. I see Sophia and she's like, hey, you. I know you. And I'm like, yeah, you know me. <laughs> like, you know, and she's like, come, you know, you want to come do some stuff in my, in my department? I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? So I start taking some of her classes um, or at the very least just start taking archaeology classes at Brooklyn College. Small department, but it was super mighty. They knew their stuff. And I was taking some anthro classes, some archaeo classes. And then I know I sound like the biggest nerd talking about all these programs that I enjoy. The more I talk about it, the more I'm like, sheesh, like, that's why you did. That's why you really didn't have a life. But there was a grant or like a, um, another program in the archaeo department. And what I like to call it, it was bone. I called it bone inventory. I can't even remember what the name of the actual term was, but I called it bone inventory. And essentially they asked me or they asked students if they were interested in. And so Sophia knew me. So she was like, yeah, throw her in the bunch. And it was like me. And I want to say like maybe two other students and then like some adjuncts and, and her assistants. They would literally just give us a box of bones and tell us to sort them. Literally. That's like, that's what we, that's what we did. They would give us a box of bones that were all tagged and bagged and be like, okay, figure out this person. It's like, huh? It's like, figure them out. You know? So I had to take a skull, look at it, look at the cracks and the fractures, figure out was this, you know, fracture that was done pre-death or after death, like a post-mortem, you know, pre-mortem, post-mortem cracks, uh, look at the striations on the hip bones. Like, was this a woman? If this was a woman, about how old was she? Looking at the patterns on the hip. Okay, she might've had some kids because you can see the marks, the expansion in the hips. Looking at people's molars, trying to identify how old they were. You know, looking at the vertebrae, counting how many were there, the phalanges. So you're like, oh, this guy's missing like 10 phalanges. It's like, all right, just mark it down. So, you know, um, so our job was literally to just try and piece people together, like literally piecing bones together to make a person. And as crazy as it was to anyone who knew me, as crazy as it was to anyone who heard what I was doing, it's like, you're touching dead people? Like, and you're okay with that? I'm like, I'm not working at a morgue. Like, I... I'm not seeing blood. It's just, it's, you know, bone colored bone. Like, what do you want? Like, you know, they're not going to wake up and go, ah, like this, it's, they're dead, dead. Like, you know, at least when, when you're in the morgue, you don't know. At least I'm sure they're dead. Like the skin is gone. They're, they're, they're gone. They're not coming back. And that was kind of like it. And it's, it's so sad because that was, that was the, the moment when it, the world opened up to me and also closed to me at the same time. Because uh, so Sophia, her background was, was it uh, an, like an animal archaeologist? I know I'm losing all the words now, I should tell you. And she specifically looked at like fish, but she was all about the animals. And her specialty was Iceland. Like she was Vikings. Like that was her specialty. So she had a trip to Iceland, to Reykjavik to uh, continue excavating, I think some Viking ship that was out there. She invited people to, from the department, come and join me. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, so I'm going to get to like go in the dirt and actually touch actual dead, really? Like, she's like, yeah, you know? And it was just so matter of factly and so nonchalant to me that I couldn't fathom that this was just everyday life for, for them, right? But at that point, I think my my parents uh, and my family overall were kind of like, 
all right, this is feeding your beast a little bit too much. <laughs> and um, where's the payout from this? Like, what's, how is this going to be a good livelihood for you, right? And so under the guise of, again, finances, even though they weren't really an issue, um, I didn't get to go on that trip. And I think after that, that's kind of like when the shutout really started to happen because by that point, you know, I'm like in my, I think my sophomore year in college, I got to pick a major and my family's kind of like aware of this. They're like, okay, she likes to do this archaeology shit, but it's, it's that, that's not paying money, you know, like, come on. Uh, and then, so there was this great push to be like, go into journalism, you write, you write well. So go into journalism, go into writing. And so I made that drastic shift. Uh, I still took, <laughs> unbeknownst to them, I still took like a few anthropology classes and archaeology classes and told myself that I was giving myself an archaeology minor, uh, whether or not anyone wanted to accept it, even the school. I don't care what the school said. I had an archaeology minor, but that was, you know, the reality. And I mean, it's, it's really hard for a lot of us who you invest the time, you really you show a love and you show a passion for something, but because as you mentioned, you know, like the societal pressure around like building a steady home and a steady career and a steady path for yourself. And all they know is like seeing the Zahikawasas like on the TV, right? Like just saying, yeah, I spent all my time just going back and forth between home and pyramids. And so they think that your entire life is gonna be nothing but you just traveling everywhere or looking like a bum because you're basically <laughs> on digs for a week at a, weeks at a time and you can't shower well and you can't eat well. And sometimes you gotta, you know, sacrifice and eat hard stale bread because you're out in the elements or, you know, you get tick bites or whatever because you're wherever you are. There's this, you know, notion of like, that's not safe. And it's also not conventional and people don't, they don't understand the unconventional. So it's very much like, we got to put you in this box that we know works. And we know that those jobs, writing jobs, they're, they're, that's a thing, right? There's magazines. There's always going to be a magazine. There's always going to be a writing job. But uh, I remember one thing that um, a relative might've told me, I believe they were like, how would you live? You know, you know, those things are based on grants to grants. So like you, there are times where you won't have money to eat or live it's not steady income you know unless you're really established in in a school or university that's providing that funding like you're not going to have a steady income and to get to that is also like you know you're going to be living off of ramen noodles and uh chewing gum for like years so <laughs> so let's not do that and so that was a lot of that, you know, that pressure to go ahead and do something that ultimately my parents would would approve of, right? And that my family approved of. And so I slowly but surely walked away from my, my love, archaeology, but not without her leaving her mark, literally, because I started getting tattoos when I was 18. And what else would I get tattooed on my body but hieroglyphs that I can read and write? So <laughs> I started tattooing hieroglyphs all over my body. And to this day, that's the only thing that I ever tattoo on me. I only I only ever put glyphs. Screw everything else. And you can actually see them right here. I got a tattoo there. I got a tattoo there. Tattoo on my, my hands, on my back, on my neck. And it's just all glyphs. So when people look at it and they're like, what does it say? Go find out. It's a hieroglyph. Go... <laughs> you know like you can find out there's a book that'll show you what it means but yeah I think that's really cool I mean I love that story on so many <laughs> different levels like and it, it, it's so funny because it reminds me so much of like 
all the shit that like I went through that some of my friends went through, you know, I think, you know, you curate that love at at various young ages. What is it? It's like fifth or sixth grade, I think, where they start Mm -hmm. and they say, this is like your year to do like the ancient world. This is when you're going to do ancient Greece and whatever. And so I would say I was much less scientific about it because I was always like, hi, I'm the kid with learning disabilities who can't do math and science. So I'm like, please don't put me in an archaeology lab because I'm just like science things. Yeah. So I very much was more of like, I'm, I'm just pure like history part over here. Like, mm-hmm. like, give me all the things to read and I'll, I'll write yes. you some nice papers. I, I can't analyze the, the data for shit. But I was I personally was really helped because I had a fantastic fantastic sixth grade teacher who just was like the, the most inspiring person and she did stuff that like sixth graders we'd, we'd eat that shit up I mean yes like we had like five tables in the classroom and then you know she was like okay you can all pick funny Egyptian names and then you're gonna compete between <laughs> the tables in the class and she was like and we're gonna build our own pyramids and yeah. like talk about the tombs and then she would like pick kids in the class to like reenact as she would read Egyptian myths she'd she'd just be like you you're like Osiris now go this like you gotta go kill your like whatever so amazing it was like amazing and then you know she did the same kind of thing for Greece and you know I think we're never gonna get over the wonder never the, the sheer wonder that is ancient Egypt I mean it's just like the mysticism it's the sand it's the it colossal is. monuments it's just it's like I don't about it it's like it's, you, it's this is why I don't know right like this is why when I ask my Egyptology friends I'm like can you describe like why you love Egypt and they're like no that's like a, a terrible question you should yeah, never really ask is. an Egyptologist <laughs> this question because they're like we can't tell you, you can yeah you can you like, really can't describe it I mean, you know, for them, they're just like, okay, well, it's going up to an engineer saying, why do you love engineering? You know, and you're like, I don't know, mm-hmm. I'm good at it. I, I like doing it. But, you know, so I, I definitely knew that there was, I loved Egypt. And I, I myself definitely coming out of sixth grade, I came home and told my mom very proudly, of course, mommy, guess what I'm going to do when I grow up? Okay, what are you going to do? What do you, how are you going to change the world? I'm going to be an Egyptologist. Just like silence. And then just, I don't really know what that is, but right. cool. like, yeah. okay. <laughs> and then, you know, I, I continued to, I, I did the same thing as well. I would like go buy a book that was like, here's how to learn to read hieroglyphs an introductory mm-hmm. book. Um, unfortunately, I never made it as far as you did because what I ended up seeing on the shelf <laughs> next to the hieroglyphics book was a teach yourself some ancient Greek book. Mm, and there was something about Greek letters and the Greek alphabet that always just made my brain go wild, like light up like fireworks. And I was like, oh, these are the prettiest letters in the entire they world. Are very and I, pretty. Love them. I mean, frats and so- I want to, I want to believe fr- like frats and sorors. That's the main reason why they name themselves after that shit. It's like, I want to be the prettiest group on the planet. What should I do? Use Greek letters. Oh my God. We're so cute. Like this is literally, I think that's, that's why. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, well, once I got to college, I was just like, <laughs> and, and you call yourselves the Pan-Hellenic Society? Like, what? I was exactly. like, and then, you know, you know, I take classes and I learn, you know, Pan-Hellenic is just, it just means all Greece. And I'm like, but you're not actually Greek. Like, why are you calling yourselves? That's a whole yes. separate thing. I was <laughs> yeah. like, y'all are just being like pretentious or something. Super so, pretentious people. So I was just like, I'm not. It's like Greeks invented go. democracy and yet you have this entire concept of we're just going to haze you and treat you like shit until we want you to be with. It's like, mm, is that really? Mm, mm, mm. 
Okay. All right. Like, sure. I don't know. I was like, you know, you have nothing in common with the, the ancient Greeks. So, like, I don't I understand know. this connection. Why? You know, and yeah. then I'm like, okay, well, it goes back to like, it must be the aristocracy. It's here. <laughs> it's alive. Yeah. You know, you have a bunch of pompous people being like, how do we make an exclusive club that's really special? This? And it's like, did you have no just concept of unique things that aren't taking an ancient culture and being like, you know what? We don't have real names. We're not imaginative. So we're just going to use these Greek letters and put them. Yeah, they're pretty. Why not? They're pretty. We just only need three. People don't really, they don't understand it. So just, just use three. And let's just also just, you know, make it really like, you know, sound cute, like AKA. Yeah, let's do that. That's adorable. They'll get it. But it doesn't even like stand for anything. I was like, at first I was like so young and naive, and I was like, oh, so it must be like an acronym for some Greek word. Yeah. And then, and then I like, I meet someone and I'm like, oh, like what house are you in? And they're like, oh, I'm an AKO. And I'm like, oh, what does it stand for? And they're like, I don't know. It's just, yeah, that's it. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) Like, like why I don't, it's very confusing. It's (laughs) super confusing. But I would say I got lucky in terms of I was allowed to pursue my passion for sure. But then when I learned very quickly, I I got really lucky. It was like one of those bonkers, just right place at the right time thing. So I had a neighbor and this young girl's older sister. It's one of these like ridiculous things where it's like like six degrees of separation. Right. So it's like my (laughs) friend's older sister had a boyfriend and it was the boyfriend's uncle. Oh God, this is like bonkers. (laughs) But it was like the boyfriend's uncle happened to be one of the top Egyptologists in the country. And so we were like, I don't know, we were like watching the Super Bowl or we were gathered for some reason. And it came up that I was just like talking about Egypt because as Egyptologists do, we nerd out and all we want to talk about is like the ancient world. Yeah. So I was like talking about that. And then the boyfriend was there too. And then he just goes, oh, you love Egypt so much. Did you know my uncle, Steve Harvey, the Egyptologist, he's mm-hmm. like taught at UCLA and all these other places or something. I was like, oh, oh, I, I want to study that in college. Do you think maybe you could ask him to like give me some advice? And he was like, sure, here's his email. Email him. He'll give you advice. So long story short, I like email the dude. And he he's he's he couldn't be nicer, but he emails me back and he's like, oh, great to hear you want to do this. Oh, but by the way, this is what you're going to need to do before you get into college. And then mm. when you're in college, you have to do X, Y and Z. And I think I, I took one look at just all the requirements, stopped at the language thing where he was like, you're going to need, you know, like Middle Egyptian. And then he's like, you're also probably going to need one other ancient language, depending on what time period. So whether that's Latin or Greek or Demotic or whatever, Coptic. Right. And I was like, so I need two. And he's like, yes. And that's on top of French and German because all languages of scholarship are either French, German or English. And so I go, so you're essentially telling me I need to learn like Like four four or five more languages. And he's like, yes. And I was like, okay, so can you give me a a realistic idea of like timeline for for how I pick these up? And he's like, oh, sure, sure, sure. Um, You're and I was like a junior in college at this point or in, in high school at this point. So he goes. Do you already have one foreign language? And I go, luckily, yes, I have some French. I I grew up with French. And he goes, okay, so just make sure you can bump that up to like professional level where you can read scholarly papers. And then he goes, I would start German now. And then he was like, then start Egyptian as a freshman. And then by end of sophomore year, you need to have picked your second language. So I was like, that's a really intense schedule that I don't really (laughs) want to figure out. I was like, no, I can't. So pretty quickly after that, I discovered 
it's just not going to happen with all the languages. I mean, languages right. are fun, but they're hard on top of all the other schoolwork. So yeah. I was like, all right. So by by the time I graduated high school, I'm clearly not going to be an Egyptologist. It's fine. What's the next closest thing? And then, you know, well, I always love ancient Greece. That's my, I don't know. I, I don't want to say it was second, but it was mm-hmm. definitely just there as well. And uh, but I didn't know classics was like the old because they don't tell right. you these things. Yes. So, yeah, exactly. I I went into college and I was like, OK, I'm going to be in anthropology because I think that's like the closest. Right. Yeah. I, I meet with the advisor and the first three things out of her mouth are like, OK, what do you want to do? And if you want to be in this major, you need to take X, Y and Z. And they're all scientific. And you just said you hate science. So I was like, oh, OK, well, <laughs> I was like, well, what do I do now? Me. Yeah, so I was like, so how do I avoid the like biological and forensic anthropology courses that I'm like, I will fail. So she was like, oh, so what are you interested in? I'm like, you know, the, the history and the religion and this. And she's like, oh, go to classics. Here's the name of the advisor. I think that's where you're going to want to live. So right. I did. I met. I found my passion. I found my people. It was a nice small department with 30, 40 tops. So it was big university. I went to the University of Missouri. Finding that nice small department was like super great. Um, mm-hmm. And then that just I just kind of did that instead. Uh, yeah. Took some ancient Greek and I was like, I'm, I'm happy where I am. But, you know, like along the way, if I hadn't gotten lucky, there's so many barriers, even beyond just like the money and the fact Mm -hmm. that you're confronted with like languages and stuff. And I'm just curious if it was the same for you. We're both women of color. So I think there is that stigma also of, well, one, you're not a man. So that sucks for you. Uh, Two, you're not even like a white woman uh, yeah. and so then three you know you're you're perceived as oh well minorities are like the last ones in first ones out for any potential jobs or internships or whatever and so I think luckily my parents didn't say anything to actively discourage me but I think mm-hmm. there's always the element of are you sure you want to do this because you know what are the prospects for even if you don't go work in the field and become an academic are, are they really going to hire you to like curate a museum right are you gonna can you be like a historical consultant on like a tv show but like they don't want to choose you yeah. you know so was there like that element of fear maybe for your parents as well where absolutely i think i think i really can't speak much for my mom honestly i think in my opinion, I think a lot of it had to deal with, again, some element of fear. And I think the element of fear for her was specifically tied to the the traveling and the unknown, right? The sense of, if you go down this road, your life will be so unpredictable, right? Like for her, it was, I don't know. I remember one thing she said to me is like, first off, she's like, Egypt in Egypt. Like, do you understand what's going on over there? Like, there's so much, there's so much going on. Um, and so she was looking at it from like the political standpoint and a lot of the, the shit that was going on, you know, over there at that time. And, you know, she's like, you don't want to be in this place. And, you know, you're an American citizen and something can happen to you. Like, you don't know, like, you know, so there was that definitely that that element of fear for her more so than the fear of basically being rejected by society based on what I wanted to do. I think I know for myself, I did have that slight bout of doubt, if you will, I'm rhyming over here. But um, knowing that, for instance, when I would apply to those internships in high school and seeing the demographic of people who were going to those internships, it wasn't me, right? So there was always this, this slight feeling or fear of, I'm not going to be what they're looking for, or 
they may see me and go, okay, this girl might be a fluke because maybe she didn't mean to apply to this, even though, yeah, I sent in my 60 bucks. So of course I meant to apply to this, but you know what I mean? Like there's this, this, as you said, you know, there's a certain stigma or a look, if you will, around the folks who handle, who are in these fields, in these industries. And it's saddening in a way, because if we saw more diverse people, then we would feel more welcomed to join you know, if we did see a, a diverse, you know, um, palette of, of people who are in these career and in these, in these fields, then we would feel more inclined to want to do them. But um, not to alienate anybody listening, you know, there's a segment, that's white people shit. Like, that's literally the cons. The, you tell somebody, archaeology, that's some white people shit. Like, I don't, you want to do that? That's some white girl shit. Like, um, yeah. who wants to go over there and have the, your hair is dirty, your, your clothes get messed up, you you wearing the same underwear for like four days in a row. Like, uh-uh, that's, that's some white people shit. I don't want So it's, it comes, you know, that stigma, it does not help the situation whatsoever. So it really does create these fears and these doubts and it creates these cages and these boxes that, you know, people can't relate. If they can't relate, again, they're afraid of this unknown. They downplay the unknown because they they're, they can't relate to it. So they then, put that little worm in your ear, right? And then you start hearing, listening to the worm a little bit more. And it's like, well, maybe maybe I will have a hard time getting through, or maybe, you know, I will have, like you said, you were able to, you know, lucky, you had a, a, a counselor who was like, okay, great. You like the classics, do this. My counselor wasn't going to give a shit. They were just like, listen, just take your 12 credits and go. Like that's, that's literally how, how they acted, you know? So it wasn't, there wasn't much encouragement um, from other people to keep, to continue going and to keep going. Granted, I mean, I looked at Sophia and she's, just, you know, itty bitty Greek woman and very domineering in what she did. And it was great, but it's like, I, you know, if I had someone who maybe looked like me as well, I would feel more like I can definitely do this versus figuring like, I'm only going to see more people who look like Sophia, you know, advance in these fields and, um, and all that other good stuff. So, I mean, definitely, definitely felt the fear there. And I mean, like I even had moments, much, much like what you did, which was like, maybe I should just go into the history aspect of things. Because I, one thing that when I did start um, getting into Egyptian culture, one thing that I really did love was mythology. But then I realized that it wasn't just Egyptian mythology that I loved. I loved any like kind of mythology across the board. I think in high school, we did the Greek, we did Greek mythology for some class or whatever. And I really want to say that that probably did not help in the in the sense that like I was again not only ingesting information about this old these old cultures but um, learning more about how they perceive themselves through the poetry the myths the you know the stories the fables the tales like understanding how they viewed society and how they viewed themselves and how they viewed other people it's just some interesting shit like I don't even know how to explain it like it's just some good old fashioned interesting stuff. But, you know, again, people are afraid of the unknown and they don't, they don't like what they don't know. So they tend to, you know, tarnish it, give it a bad name. It's definitely, it's definitely hard. And like, you know, even as someone who did put my foot down and be like, fuck you, I don't care what you say. I'm getting this undergrad major, you know, at least grad school is a whole different story because you do have to have, uh, it's a significant investment, but finished off the, the undergrad and I'm, and I'm, I couldn't be happier. I, I would do nothing different because I, I love what I did. I would say it is hard if you invest a significant amount of time in your life devoted to something. Cause I, I think I'm like you where I, I don't like to say I have a very addictive personality about 
everything because that's just so clearly not true. Like, very just, true, I yeah. can't just look at everything and be like, I'm addicted. I but, want this. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, you know, very specific things like, you know, pick yes. one or two. And then you'll be like, sure, sure, sure. I'll just like take this and run as far as you'll let me go. And, you know, so this being such a huge part of both of our lives, when we both got to the respective ends of our ropes, you know, mm-hmm. as, as far as we were able to take our passions now that you like okay you said you you kind of caved and then listened to your parents and then decided okay well maybe i'll go for something that will actually give me a paying job because i don't want to be poor forever and i kind of caved to the same pressure because a lot of people were just kind of like well what are you gonna do with that degree like okay you 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 insisted on getting the degree so now what do you do because you you can't go on to grad school and i sort of discovered through trial and error that you know majors and in humanities and especially the ancient studies they come in handy for everything you do like every career field and that's something that I wish I knew a lot sooner than I I discovered it I suppose Mm -hmm. um because you know my first job out of college was working on a political campaign Mm -hmm. and when I got the job I think I was really shocked because I was like I did not feel qualified so I think I I asked the person who eventually became my boss and I just said Hey, any reason why you like hired me? Cause I feel super lucky. Like why? Why? Um, you know, and, and they said, you know, most people who audition for campaign jobs or any kind of political job, the first thing they talk about is, oh, I have this experience and I love politics and I do blah, 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 blah. And, and I can sell myself and sell the candidate, blah, blah, blah. So it's like your really standard political resume. Uh, they said, we loved your resume because it was different because you know how to talk to people. You know, we can train mm. you to do the political things fine and I think that uh, that applies to a lot of professions you know that you'll just find you you can teach someone any of the the practical skills you need to do the job but it's really hard to teach someone to to think critically or to, Mm -hmm. to to be able to write or talk to people or understand how things work so as someone who didn't get the major and who moved on into writing, you know, how has this, this significant passion of yours affected your career and, and your life really up until now? Cause obviously, you know, it's not a passion that you just completely said, okay, I'm never doing this again. Yeah, no. Um, so, you know, how do you find ways to like involve yeah. that love into what you're doing now? I can absolutely tell you how I've done that. So I've been sneaky. Um, <laughs> well, I shouldn't even say sneaky. So like I said, I, I get these tattoos. Of course, the tattoos aren't really anything but some aesthetically pleasing thing for me. But as I did mention to Jenny on the podcast, so when I started watching, when I watched The Mummy when I was 12, when I was about 14, and this was around the time right before I got accepted into the high school that I got into, I had started writing a story. Because I, even from the time I was about eight, like I used to like writing stories. Hence why my mom was very big about, why don't you just get into writing? Like I've seen you write since you were eight. So why are you not pursuing that? So I had started writing this story and it just kind of kept growing and growing as I kept writing about it or writing it. Um, and it was based around a young woman. If you're hearing this, don't steal my story uh, because it's not published. But long story short, like I started writing works around or this young adult fiction about a young girl experiencing ancient Egypt in this kind of like mythical, supernatural way that is embedded in her, the fabric of her family and her life and all that other good stuff. And so I started writing that story and I, I, from 14 to about, I don't even know how old I was, from about 14 
on, I would go back to it back and forth. Now, when I had to let go of that passion, I did not go back to writing it because at that point I was, I was a little down in the dumps, like, oh, I can't do what I want, but it was still very much there, right? Like it was still very much something that I would, I would go back to and write here and there and sometimes edit and then go back and write more. I haven't finished it. And hence why Miss Varney was like, please finish that book because clearly you still love this thing. Um, so the book was one thing that I kept doing. And then, as I said earlier, like I have a boutique, a handmade boutique. And one of the things that I do with one of my piece, with my pieces is I embed a lot of that love of history and the lo- a lot of my love of history, Egyptology, the classics, like much like you, I embed a lot of that into my beading, into my stringing. So you will actually find like of my jewelry pieces, I have pieces that, you know, they are inspired by ancient Rome. They are inspired by ancient Greece. They are inspired by ancient Egypt. Um, I started buying, I would buy like uh, bone beads that are carved like scarabs or, you know, um, pendants with, you know, Isis on it or things like that. And kind of like allow that love of ancient Egypt to kind of express its way, express itself in another way. Um, through my jewelry, right? Because everyone may not want to hear me talk about how the birth of Osiris and, you know, how the the five, how we got the five extra days in the year, according to ancient Egyptian mythology, but you'll buy a pretty necklace with like an ankh on it, right? Like you'll, you'll buy that and you'll kind of like associate, oh, this is Egyptian, isn't it? Yeah, it is a little bit more in depth than that, but sure, why not? Yeah, that. So that's kind of like how I brought that in to my my day-to-day. I mean, even in my home, I surround myself with papyrus scrolls uh, or drawings. I remember I when I was much younger, my sister, and that's another thing too, she's my sister, God, I love her. Uh, so I have a couple of sisters, one of them who's more adventurous than the other. She got into belly dancing at some point when I was in high school. I became her protege. And so that also connected me to Egypt, right? Like we were doing Egyptian belly dancing together. She was a part of an actual troupe. And again, I would dance for her at home and then I would do little performances at school. But even that, right? Like the fact that I was doing a dance, you know, a dance that was very, you know, the fabric of, of a culture that has been passed down generationally. Like here I was learning these steps and learning these moves and understanding why they came to be and why the positions and the, uh, all the arms and, and so many arms and belly dancing. And they're all like images, pictures on a wall. It's ridiculous, but it's great. So I started doing the dancing. I do the jewelry. I, like I said, the scrolls, I would buy scrolls. Um, I went to Canada once and there was a shop. It was owned by an Egyptian guy and he would have like just these stacks of papyrus paintings and have like the little uh, seals of authenticity. Like, yes, this was drawn by someone in Egypt and I would buy those. So like in my house, I have scrolls of Egyptian um, images or like just, you know, like replicas of like wall images and stuff like that there. So if someone comes into my home, like they may get, uh, you know, a slight whiff of <laughs> like, mm, maybe this woman likes step this stuff. Um, I don't have a lot of it out now only because I'm still trying to figure out how to decorate the place. But if the thing was this for me, if I wasn't able to express my love of ancient Egypt or I couldn't pursue it in the way that I wanted to, I was still going to soak up what I could whenever I could or however I could. So if I, um, I would do things like, um, I try to, as a matter of fact, I was trying to get work at Archaeology Magazine because I was like, if I can't go out, I might as well write for the magazine. Like, you know, um, and I knew a guy who actually used to work there, um, this gentleman who, <laughs> so many degrees of separation, he ended up being, so he used to work at Archaeology Magazine at the same time that Julie Powell 
Pollock's husband worked at at archaeology. And if you don't know who Julie Powell is, if you ever seen the movie Julie and Julia about the woman who did the Julia Childs like project, her, so she's the real person, the movie's based on her real people. Her husband used to work at Archaeology Magazine with my old coworker. So he's like, yeah, like if you want, you know, I can make the connect, but I was working at that job and I was like, I'm not gonna look a little little shady if I'm trying to hop jobs you know through a person so I I didn't do that I should have I really should take advantage but I I was trying to be loyal to my company so I didn't do that but yeah it manifests you know like like I said mostly mostly in my art right now which is my jewelry I I bring I try to bring a lot of that a lot of that sense of wonder in there and uh I am starting to go back to my work my my stories my book and work on that and kind of really have this hopefully cathartic moment where I can get all of this love and passion out in a book that someone can read and um, and let it live there and let that sense of adventure and ex- exploration live through the book because I couldn't physically do it. But I don't know. I'm, I'm literally one of those, and I'm gonna say it weirdos, and I'm gonna say it weirdo because I love the word weirdo. I love being called a weirdo. I don't ever think it's offensive. But I'm one of those weirdos that like when I walk on the street, I think about the historical context of like contents of or, or background of everything that I'm around. So even in my neighborhood, I think about what was this neighborhood like a hundred years ago or 200 years ago. And then I might Google, go on Google and start Googling it and start learning that, you know, all my block used to be a farm. Right. And so I start looking around to see like remnants of that. Yeah. I just, I like to take those little tiny factoids and put them in my brain and keep them there and store them there like a rainy day. So, you know, wherever I can get my little moments of adventure and, and, and love and, and exploration, I, I try to take it and exploit it as best as I can. Do you splurge? Cause, uh, so I have uh, a sister who lives in Brooklyn actually, and uh, she's lived there my whole, my whole life. Basically mm-hmm. she's uh, a lot older than I am, but every time I would go to New York, I would say the first thing I got to do other than see family, I like, I just have to go to the Met. It's just, I'm so addicted to museums because yeah. as you know, the way you feel about the word weirdo is kind of how I feel about the word nerd, right? Yeah. I've never I feel tired the same way about that word, nerd. nerd, too. Never. Right. So, you know, people are like, you're a nerd. Like, why don't you go to Broadway? Which I do. Let, let's be very clear. I do because I love Broadway, too. But, you know, when people are like, but you could go shopping or do a billion other things because there's, you know, 10,000 things to do in New York. I'm always running off to the Met. And I'm, I'm like, place. well, have you seen the place? I'm like, there is a like a whole ass temple in there okay i was like i can go sit in a giant room with a sandwich and like stare at this temple and just be like it's so pretty it's so gorgeous Mm -hmm. what would it be like living next to this temple what would it be like being able to just go like you know offer up some you know prayers to the gods in this temple so in that regard i think i'm really similar in that you know I, i like to just look at the world around me sort of take it in and be like what was the ancient equivalent to that? Yep. Like, or what is this based off of? And I think, you know, working in politics as well, uh, you know, I, I loved my ancient political thought classes. So anything I do just to, to work in my normal people job. I'm like, like I said, yeah, I think that will, I mean, all of that stuff is definitely, I mean, a feather in your cap really with, with politics. I mean, ser- seriously, I mean, everything's like, <laughs> it's the it's it's literally ingrained like it's you can't escape it so I can I when you said that the person you know accepted you and you were like why I'm like I I think they knew why I think they were like we could tap this chick for a whole bunch of ancient shit that we can like put out there and people will think this is brand freaking new and it's not 
And I love that because I'm just like, no one, I honestly, people are so unimaginative. Like if you don't care or study about the ancient world, honestly, I can't tell you how many times on the regular, I'll just modernize or tweak like an ancient idea. And I'll just like Mm -hmm. present it and be like, Hey, this is what we could do to adapt this thing. And then they just go, Oh, that's an amazing idea. And I'm like, Oh, you know where I got that from? My like history textbook. And I just like made some adjustments for modern times and like presented it to you. Thank you. Yep. So I I would say times have changed and and we have so many more things that suddenly discovered that they're like classically based or, hey, people actually like the ancient world and and it's worth it to to make things, um, you know, taking inspiration from these. And there are so many books and TV shows that have, Mm -hmm. you know, the ancient world or cultures or something in it do you indulge do you read or or watch a lot of these things because i know that some people (laughs) are like oh no no no, don't i don't want to because i'm trying to come up with ideas and so you know i don't like i don't want it to influence me so like the one i can think of for for you for certain i mean i read it all the time too is um the rick riordan kane chronicles because that's all Mm. in egypt because i mean i you know, I read the Percy Jackson series when I was in uh, seventh, eighth and ninth grade, I think. And so that for me being Greece and, you know, I was like, OK, I'm obsessed with this. So, of course, that's what I'm going to read. But, you know, for someone who loves Egypt so much, you know, yeah, you know, do, I don't know. Do you let yourself sort of dream and say, I'm going to I'm going to come up with the next great uh, yes. series about ancient Egypt. I'm going to be the next Rick Riordan. I yes. Um, in fact, I believe that's what kind of triggered when I started writing at 14, because um, I had heard about the books. I, I will admit, I did not read any of those books. I, I heard about them much later, but in my time, I can't even remember. There was a whole bunch of like Newberry books that came out then. And I would hear about these books and these book series and these book series, like based on, again, these very old world concepts. And so for me, I think, I think I was a little, I was thinking I was being a little bit of a snob when I was 14, to be honest, because I was like, I'm not going to read this stuff. I'm just going to make my own. Thank you very much. So, but yeah, so a lot of my inspiration for even starting that book at 14 or starting that novel at 14 was the thought process of, I wanted to create like a OIA series that would be based in, in, in ancient Egypt. At that point, I was just thinking of this one book um, and I had this really good idea for the book. At least I thought it was a really good idea for the book. So I was pushing forward with it definitely I indulge in those things like I said I won't say too too much about the books I won't even lie I have not I haven't had a deep dive in books in a really long time mostly because just life and work and I want to shut my brain off half the time but absolutely like are you kidding me and anything like even the terrible stuff what was what was that that gods of Egypt movie which was oh god oh terrible I'm like, we don't talk about that. It's a bunch of like white people running around. We don't ever talk about that movie. And yet I still felt compelled to watch it. That's that's to tell you. That's to tell you. That's to tell you. I was like, this movie looks like shit. It looks terrible. Why is it? This is terrible. But you know what? Guess what? When it came on cable, I was like, I'm just going to sit and watch this shit. Let me just watch it and see what they do. And I mean, it was gross, but. It was pretty to look at some of the times. Some of the times it was pretty to look at. Other times it was just like, oh God, what is this? It's one of those that I would say it's like the, it's so bad that it's actually kind of entertaining. Like, yeah, it's, it's like just, it's something that you can love to hate watch. Like you just love hate watching it. Um, So (laughs) I would watch a lot of those. In fact, like I said, I think at some point in time when I realized that 
my dream of Egyptology wasn't necessarily going to come true. At the very least, I held on to the love of the historical, um, like you said, like the classic, just the love of ancient culture. Just if I couldn't focus, if I couldn't make it my career to focus on this specific culture, which is fine, you know, this culture that I love, I'm going to still look at others. I think, you know, when I was, when I, when it clicked for me that ancient Egypt was what I wanted to do, it wasn't, I think I honed in on it, right? As opposed to neglecting the fact that I just loved the concept of ancient cultures, period. Like I just loved it because even after we did the ancient Egypt culture in sixth grade, the next thing we did was like Native American, right? And like you said, like some we do Greece and we do Rome. And, and so my teacher was very much like, we're going to do Native American and Egyptians. Um, she was like, only people of colors, Native Americans, Egyptians. So it was like, okay, all right, right on sister. But you know, <laughs> but I also think we just didn't have enough time to do every single culture too. But that love, that just love of understanding and just taking in, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's just like absorbing and just taking in what people lived like, what they were like, how they just went about life. And in such simpler times, it just always it just, it's like a little giddiness, you know, like understand, you know, it's just a little giddiness. So mm-hmm. I continue that feeling again, like you said, like indulging and shit. So like Outlander, yeah, I'm watching all that shit. She went back <laughs> in time. I'm watching all of that stuff, even though that's not really ancient. Cause it's like the 1800s or whatever, but that type of time traveling thing. Sure. I'll watch, but Spartacus, oh, loved Spartacus on stars. Oh, mm-hmm. Oof, such a good show. Um, I used to watch Camelot, which is like another one based on, you know, Camelot and the mythology behind that. So anything that's mythological, I gravitate towards instantly. And most TV or films that uh, are based in some kind of ancient culture, I gravitate as well. And I'm also one of those people who will watch like a movie and go, oh, you know, this is a remake of such and such. And you know where they got that storyline from? <laughs> got it from that, and that myth. You know, even read that Greek myth about the, yeah, about Sisyphus. Yeah, that's, that's what they put in this movie. You remember? So like, I'm one of those folks. I, do you I watch do, like, yeah. and are you looking just to be entertained because you love the culture or are you like, a lot of other classes I know who you watch it, but then like there's that small part of you that when you're watching, you're like, no, this is so historically inaccurate. Like, and and not even just like the stuff that doesn't seem like blatant, that doesn't stand out to you like Gods of Egypt. It's like the smaller details where um I sort of, I do indulge in watching like the Brad Pitt Troy because hey, it's it looks great. Yes. But it's like, you know, I have such a problem and I talk about this all the time with friends. I'm like, yeah, do you remember that like first shot of when they introduced Sparta, like right before you see Eric Bann and Orlando Bloom um, and introduce like Helen and stuff. And people are like, uh, I don't remember a lot about that. Like, why do you have an issue with that first shot of Sparta? And I'm like, because the first shot is a harbor. And then they say, this is Sparta. And I go, <laughs> anyone who looked at a freaking map is going to know Sparta is completely landlocked. It is nowhere mm. near the open ocean. Like, this is so inaccurate. Did you even look at a map? Like, why yeah. is this a thing? You know, or do you not let that bother you? Cause you're like, whatever, it's, it's too small. It's a mix of both. It's absolutely, it's definitely a mix of both. I know for me, so like, for instance, my mom growing up, despite the fact that she didn't really care too much for my Egyptology passion, she would buy these things that looked really pretty to her. But to me, which is so inaccurate, like she has a bust that kind of looks like King Tut, but the hieroglyphs on the bottom is like chicken scratch. Like they don't make any sense. They're not real glyphs at all. Like they didn't even take the time to try and put real glyphs there. And it's literally, literally chicken scratch. It's like just scratches and 
and I hate it so much. And she looks at it and she looks at me and she's like, but isn't this what you love? And I'm like, it's pretty. <laughs> like, I don't know what I'm gonna tell you. It's, none of that stuff means anything, but it's pretty. I mean, like, yeah, I, I'm one of those folks. Like I can, I can have a moment where it's like, okay, that's, that's not correct. And also that's not what happened in the myth or that's not what happened in the story. Or, you know, they changed that. But I typically tend to bookmark it so that I can continue to enjoy it and then bitch after it's done. <laughs> so it's like, I'll watch it, I'll book. Okay, that was messed up. I'm gonna wait till this movie's over so I can. Cause you know, sometimes when you you say things to people who are enjoying the movie, like, I don't wanna hear that shit. I'm watching it for the entertainment. Like, I don't give a shit that it was wrong. And so I'm like, okay, fine. I won't, I won't correct the movie while we're watching it. I'll wait until we're done. Like, yeah, that was so wrong. Like they weren't even related. Like, what are you talking about? Like, what? Like, you know, um, like what, what were they talking about? Like the king, um, the prince of Egypt and Ramesses and how it's not the right Ramesses. And so that was a whole I was like, listen, it's not the right Ramesses, but that movie gave us When You Believe. So I'm not going to be too mad about that because they gave us a great song, some killer hits. I mean, we got to see Moses on the big screen and it wasn't the boring ass Ten Commandments. So I'm happy. I'm, I'm cool. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, there's always a time where it's like, okay, I understand wanting to be historically accurate to a point, but I mean, it is the entertainment industry. So like, yes, there is that point where you have to have the entertainment factor and then you have to have, and then, you know, scholars are always going back and forth on the discussion of, well, are we trying to be accurate or authentic? And I'm like, Ooh, that's a hard one. And I remember, I think I read an interview with the like historical consultant on the HBO Rome, which I mm. loved, by the way, it was fantastic. Um, highly recommend. That was for- a show I did. I didn't get, I didn't watch. And that's like, cause I didn't have cable when it was out. I was one of the I'm really poor. We had to like get like a bad cable box, like the box, oh. <laughs> like the, the box, the box that they would the box. So can uh, watch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I. I don't even know. I think I didn't even watch that until college. I mean, it came out before, way well before then. But like, yeah. I think I got it as like a birthday present. Honestly, like someone picked up the box set at like Walmart in the five buck bin, it's and they were like, "Of them to think of you." Yeah, and they were just like, <laughs> "Here, we know you love ancient things. Like, have at it." And I was like, "Okay." So yeah, I like watched it, and then I just remember thinking, "Wow, they made Rome like really." gross looking like mm-hmm. this is just like not what you envision that's not what you read about like what mm-hmm. and then yeah I was just like doing some research and then historical consultant was kind of like yeah well you know a lot of things don't make sense don't add up historically <laughs> but we were going for this gritty authentic feel so we want you to just like be like it's an authentic experience it doesn't need to be historically accurate just as long as you feel that it, it could be a feel thing. like this was what rome looked like and felt like and yeah so then you know i i think that argument in that particular situation got me to be a little less snobbish about because i i do i feel bad because you know anything historical and i'm the first person in my friend group who's just like this and this and this <laughs> yeah. it's not oh my gosh what are they you know and half my friends are like dude 
shut up. I'm just and here I, to like have a good time and watch this thing. Like, don't rule. Don't spoil this for me. What are you doing? So, you know, I have to always be cognizant of that. But I think it's great. And, you know, one of the problems that I'm always seeing as someone who now is outside the field, but still very much interacts with it, you mm-hmm. know, is these are these are fields that do a historically just terrible so awful job of advertising themselves yes it is like they need to hire a let other right so i'm like you know what if you want to let other people advertise for you and i'm like i can't tell you how many scholars get pissed about things and i'm like well if you don't want to be pissed at everything they do then advertise better or just be like here do you want help there's this disconnect that i i just don't understand and you know, I don't know. I, I think about ways to, to bridge that, to help that along. And, you know, I, I, I often ponder ways that how do we sell classicists and Egyptologists and Assyriologists on, hey, academia is great, but also we could use you in like a plethora of other roles. Help us because what we get are things like gods of Egypt if you mm-hmm. aren't careful. You know, and and I think it's hard. A lot of it comes down to to funding, which is something I always talk about a lot, which yeah. is, you know, the entertainment industry spends billions of dollars on creating things. Academia, yep. on the other hand, is always getting their funding stripped away. So mm-hmm. people don't realize that there is an avenue where you could invest your energies in stuff and expand the argument and hopefully change the funding model. You you mentioned before that, you know, cost was kind of an impediment mm-hmm. for, for a lot of programs of study. Did you, I know you didn't get to go on that trip, but did mm-hmm. you have or have you had any opportunities since to go indulge and in, in travel to a place and do a museum tour or do you find that opportunities are still just not there to be able to go and sort of indulge even if you're not you know a young student anymore yeah I think it's partially I don't think there are a lot out there and it's also part that I wasn't looking I think And to be brutally honest, I think like it hit me really hard once like my family was pretty dead set on this and we don't like this. We don't think this would be good for you. We think we should try other things. And so they didn't know I was internalizing the hell out of that. And I was like, oh my God, what I want to do with my life isn't good enough. Like I was going through a lot of that and I was just like, yeah, sure, whatever. I'll do, (laughs) you know, on the outside, I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. I'll just do journalism, whatever, sure, whatever. Yep, right. And so because of a bit of that, I won't even lie, a bit of that kind of died. So I wasn't really looking too, too much for other opportunities. But if an opportunity did pop itself up, I would go, right? So there were times before the hard stop on that, my sister, like if there was an exhibit coming to New York, the Brooklyn Museum, they were bringing like a mummy or somebody, you know, because you know how they were always touring these mummies around, <laughs> like there's friggin' superstars and rock stars and toured. You know, if someone came to New York, she would let me know like, oh, you know, you want to go to this and sure, I would go to it. Or there used to be something that would happen at the Brooklyn Museum every first Saturday of the month. They have them in, well, they don't have them anymore because of the pandemic but which were like first Saturdays and basically like the museum would be open to anybody to just come in that Saturday and there'd be like a thematic event but the museum was open to you to just go through and so I would take advantage of like those events whenever I could and then like always just go into the Egyptian exhibits and kind of just like sitting there and I remember one time I me and my friend were kind of like doing like I was doing rather like a let's search for my tattoos thing and I would like walk around and find a glyph and take a picture of it and be like this is what I have here and it's that kind of thing but aside from that like yeah I didn't I didn't see Honestly, like you said, I think a lot of it too is like there isn't a push to publicize these things, right? So even though I wasn't looking, 
there still it still wasn't something that was being promoted for me to see, right? Like if I wanted interest, you know, wanted to learn more about something, I had to take, I take the initiative to go somewhere and find that data or whatever. Like it, it's, it's not popping up in a newsletter, like freaking Bath, Bath and Body Works would just pop up in your email or something. Hey, new exhibit coming through, you know, for ancient lovers. Like there's, there's none of that shit. No, <laughs> you know, like they don't do any of that. So it was, like I said, I think partially not finding some of the resources and definitely I, I take ownership and partially just not seeking them out, but definitely feeling like there still wasn't a lot because even when I was deep in it, the internships that I was looking for, like I was scouring the internet, like looking for these internships, but finding them in like the most obscure of places and going, what the hell? Like, okay, what? University of Kentucky? Like what? You know, it's like, <laughs> like what? Huh? But again, it's so far and few between. I think in my own little personal studies when I was in high school, like it's trying to find all the the universities that actually, like you said, have the funding for that. Like some of them, they don't fund it. When I was trying to get into, again, uh, during my college days with the admission advisors, they would even say to me like, yeah, we don't have a department like that. Maybe you can like hodgepodge something to make a department, but we don't really have that department. Or Brandeis is like, yeah, like our department's really small so that's why again it was really pressing to them or impressive to them it was really startling to them to have somebody say yeah I want to do that because it's not well versed it's not well out there it's it's and it's crazy because as you said and as I think we're kind of just like saying you know around over and over again like the historical the the impact that ancient culture its history its its mythology the sociology behind it the psychology behind the people who lived at that time it is embedded in our fabric like it it is embedded in everything that we do and so many of us are so there's a subconscious they're not even aware that those things are just prevalent in their day-to-day and in their everyday lives but we figure yeah it's the past it's something cute to look at in a movie every few minutes every few years but who who wants to spend time actually learning this stuff and it's like we do so we can give you more content for your dumbass movies that's what like (laughs) you know so um yeah it's important give us money (laughs) yes please actually seriously give us money and so i know i know in your like nine to five job your your other like real people job mm. you know you you said now you're you're also an admissions counselor and so you know being in an academic setting right you're not okay maybe you're not like a saji professor but you yeah know, you're still with working within the, the academic system how often do you encounter students who voice uh, interest in the ancient world or s- just something like classics adjacent egyptology adjacent and is there something you look for to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh this is great. You're, you, uh, how do I help you along? How do I encourage you to do this versus someone who's like, yeah, I like this, but you know, no big deal, whatever. It's just a minor part of me, what I like. Yeah. So at my school, right. It's, it's a tech based school. So I barely ever have anybody say anything to me about their love of history. And they are more trying to sell me about their love of tech, even though I can tell half of them don't even really love tech it's it's their love of the money that you can make in tech um not necessarily their love of tech but on the honestly sometimes when i first started doing um the admissions work and i would talk to people and you can kind of like get a sense of you know those who their passions extended beyond tech. So I would come across a person here and there who was like, yeah, I do love history or I majored in history. I majored in this and I majored in that. 
And you see them too, kind of like turning to tech because they're like, couldn't cut it or like, I couldn't get the funding or I just need a career change and and stuff like that. So it's still very minimal that I'll see people come through uh, with that kind of background or at the very least with that kind of love. And they're trying to marry the two because we also get like a lot of people who are like coders that want to make games and stuff. And then it's like, even then they're still, the games aren't necessarily like archaeological games. They're just, I just want to make a game. Like I want to make the next, I don't know. I don't even know Halo or whatever, whatever, but, (laughs) but um, yeah, it's, it's not that frequent that I will find somebody who kind of like shares that same sentiment coming in the school. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if you did get one of those rare people, I mean, you know, you, you don't want to like, there's no favoritism really involved. So, so that's not what I mean to say. Like, it's not mm. favoritism, but do they stand out to you a little more just because of the fact that it is kind of rare? And so if you see this, then do you think to yourself, oh, so this person might have more to offer than just like strictly STEM brain or whatever, you know? Yeah. Oh, okay. This person has more skills from their background that, hey, it could hopefully uh, be married to these more technical things that would just hopefully make a better person. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They t- definitely they stand out to me like a sore thumb. Whenever I find those kind of people, like I tell them, hey, that's my tribe. Like we're from the same, I literally tell them like, we're from the same tribe, from the same tribe. That's, a, that's, that's my tribe right there. They're like, well, I don't worry about it. That's my tribe, you know. So, um, and I and I do. I often encourage anybody who is interested in pursuing tech but has like a love of history or anything like that. I tell them like, find a way if you can marry if you can marry the two, find a way. Why not? Like, if I could, I would. So you know, go ahead and go for it. And for sure, I think it would get more people in. Uh, yeah, I think it would encourage more people to not be so afraid to major in classics or Egyptology because if we present them a halfway decent argument that says there's nothing that says you can't do this and still go into mm-hmm. sort of a, a technical school after and then just marry the two and come out a very well-rounded skillful person that would make a really good argument I think we just don't mm-hmm. do that which is just tragic it is so tragic uh, so tragic so tragic so at the end of uh, each podcast episode i ask my guests if they would read percy shelley's poem ozymandias it is my favorite poem of all time. Uh, And I think that uh, if you are unfamiliar with it, you will see almost instantly why it is my favorite poem of all time. And then after you read it, I mean, if you could just give us like your hot takes on what does this poem mean? Why is it important? Is it still relevant? And anything else you could think to say about it? I'm already going to say that this is a sexy poem just because it's by Percy Shelley and doing a bit of research about Percy Shelley on his own. He was a sexy man i mean like he hung out with lord byron and the rest of those rakes and uh libertines so i can already say that this is gonna be one sexy romantic poem just because it's shelly <laughs> but sure i sh- hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ciao, read it. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor, well, those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look at my work, see mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of the colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Look at Shelly being all promiscuous and shit writing this stuff. <laughs> I'm sorry, y'all. I'm sorry. I y'all don't let me don't don't bring me around poetry and stuff. I just watched that Mary Shelley movie the other day too, so it's like fresh. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I had like he's how he's such a sexy bastard. Ooh, I met a traveler from an antique land. I mean, two trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. I mean, the imagery right there uh, near them on the stand have sunk a shadow. <sighs> Sorry, I'm just like reading this and taking, I'm taking it in as, as I yeah, read yeah. it. Mm. I mean, if this is not, at least for me, a poem talking about the things left behind <laughs> from the people before and how you can see it sculpted in the work itself, you can see the love and the passion. And I mean, is this, is this or is this not archaeology? I mean, I would very much say it, it for sure involves thematic elements of the ancient world of archaeology of all those things you know it may help you if i tell you a little bit about it which is that yes. ozymandias is actually just the greek name for ramesses the second's throne name so in mm. egyptian right it's like user ma'at Ray or something like yeah. that so they translated it to ozymandias for the greeks um and yeah this is this is based Shelley wrote it based off of like a famous statue of Ramesses that mm-hmm. had been discovered back in 1818 that was making its way to the British Museum and the way they found it was that the statue had broken off so that's where you get the trunkless legs the trunkless legs yeah and then you have you know the head of the statue that's like you know however tons heavy it had fallen and was like half sunken in the in the sand so he wrote it kind of as a, a love letter to to mm-hmm. Egypt since Egyptomania you know was like at its height in in the yes. 1800s so you know i i think the way i look at it maybe because of my background in politics as well is this poem is really a commentary by shelley on human hubris right it's a commentary on the ephemeral nature of political power which is look on my works ye mighty and despair nothing beside remains right so it's basically he thought he was the greatest dude in the whole world with yes. the best kingdom he was rich he had all the power and his look at him now yeah look at him like, now look at nothing his left trunkless legs 
<laughs> yeah. It's, it's gone. And the fact is, we wouldn't even know about this king that he existed if it weren't for the artisan who like sculpted sculpted it. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of like, yeah, I'm sure the Pharaoh thought he was great at the time. But uh, yo, dude, if it weren't for the little guy, uh, we literally wouldn't know about you and yeah. your empire. So like sucks to suck, you know, so mm-hmm. that's kind of just the short version of how I interpret it. And you know, I see I definitely see a lot of that. Definitely agree with that I think what I take but again I agree with a lot of that I think what I take from it or the very least the parts of it that are hitting home for me the way in which Shelley speaks about the sculptor to me that passion that raw love of what they did and him acknowledging you know you can see those passions red ah, I'm I'm seeing it in this sense of here's this man speaking about the thing that he found and how he can tell a lot about the thing that he found based on the way that the sculptor did this work. And like you said, you know, here's this mighty king of kings and yet he's a wreck, right? He's, he's, a, he's broken pieces of stuff laid about. And why I'm, why I'm speaking of it that way is because as kind of sad as this kind of is, oh, wow, look at this huge king of kings who's basically reduced to rubble. He is reduced to bits of sand and stone. There's still a love there because they're acknowledging these bits of sand and sand and stone and rubble to be the king of king right like there's still an acknowledgement here was the person who was a big ass deal right and you can tell how big much of a big ass deal there was just by the passion that went into the work that created this piece it's broken as lifeless as it is so that's what's kind of hitting me in that sense like that romanticized feeling about finding this piece yeah that's what i'm calling to i'm yeah yeah i mean you know it's poetry right there's no right or wrong way to interpret it it. and so the the thing i like to leave people with and guests as well is so the very last thing i ask is if you go off the definition of it's this the statement on on hubris and political power and things that were that are no more that you need help you can't just as the all-powerful whatever can you think of the modern ozymandias is there anything in our Mm. current world our current culture you know it could be a person a place a thing just something that's symbolic that we can point to within our modern society to try to bring this poem and our understanding of it into the modern world by trying to relate to it now yeah i don't know why beyonce came into my head (laughs) i'm not sure why um i think because it said king of kings and i was like king beyonce and trust and believe i'm not like a super huge beyonce fan either so it's not even why beyonce came into my head but i had this thought as you you talked And I said, could you imagine the stuff that are left behind by like Beyonce that somebody can see like 200 years from now and go, this was a big deal like this, you know, like see an old portrait or a photo of her old CD or things like that. I often think about those things. What will the world think of us when we are gone? Like what will the new world think of us once we're gone? So I don't know if I could think of, like feel like Beyonce came into my head because she's like the modern day king of frigging kings. Like Beyonce is everyone's best love favorite person. I don't know, like like she's huge. But I definitely feel like it may be, the way that our society is, is definitely going to be some, something entertainment based. I don't even know. Like for me and Ozymandias is like the VCR. It was like so revolutionary when it came out and now it's trash. (laughs) Like, yeah. That's a great one. You can't find a VHS anywhere. And yet this thing made it so possible for us to leave our homes and watch TV and come back and see the things that we missed and to record things that we loved, to watch it over and over and over again. This was the thing that we needed 
that we lived for that everyone had to have at least one in their house. And now you cannot find one. If I were to show my 11 year old niece and nephew, twin niece and nephew and their nine year old brother a VCR, they wouldn't know what it was. They literally don't. <laughs> They're still wrapping their brains around like rotary phones. So, oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, I mean, that's my, I'm going to say, forget Beyonce. VHS. Like, that's my king of kings. (laughs) Nice. Nice. Oh, man. That's a great answer. And I, I, uh, that's a great place to end. So where can people find you if they want to find you? I guess you guys can find me in a myriad of places hiding like the lost treasures of the world. So you can find me on Instagram at ALJA0214. And like I said, I'm hiding from the world. I barely show my face on that. So you can find me on that. You can find me on Twitter at La Jolie Poeta. That's L-A-J-O-L-I-E-P-O-E-T-A. And if you want to check out my podcast, you're more than welcome to do so. You can find the Adultish Podcast um, on most streaming or all streaming platforms. So like Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, uh, Google Play, SoundCloud, etc. And you can hit us up on our social media outlets. That's Adultish P-Z-O-D-C-A-S-T on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Facebook. So you can find me there. Um, oh, yes. And I just uh, reestablished my uh, blog. Um, and you can read more about my life and definitely this podcast episode, which I will be posting on my blog, Trust <laughs> and Believe, when this, go, when this goes live. Uh, so you can uh, hear more about me and see more about me on my, um, on my blog. That's ALJAthewriter.com. So A-L-J-A-T-H-E writer.com. Great. Well, I encourage everyone to check out if he is socials, channels, her podcast, all the, all the things, all the things. Thank you. It's been really, really fun. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Trireme Transit is now departing Ancient Odyssey. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half-sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 